this morning, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 47. Psalm 47, we'll get there in just a minute. While you're turning there, I want to go ahead and say that if you're visiting with us this morning, we're thrilled that you're here. One thing that you could do for us is just take this card and give us some information about yourself. We want to follow up with you and let you know the exciting things happening at Prince. As you leave today, the offering baskets are in the back. Put that in there, and we would love to have a record of your visit. Just do that right now if you're visiting with us today. I also want to remind you that we love to pray for you. If you have a confidential prayer request anyway, that we can pray for you tomorrow morning, 8.30, our staff pastors will gather and we'll pray and we will plead with the Lord on your behalf. So let us know how we can pray for you. Fill that out and put it in the offering basket. We would love the honor to be able to do that. God has an incredible way as we walk with him to put certain circumstances and moments, often crisis in our life in order to take some truth about him that we have known with our minds and allow us to experience it with our hearts. God will often take some surprising circumstance or moment and he will take a little truth and he will make it real to us for the first time. Maybe something that you've sung about or talked about, even prayed through for years will now all of a sudden become fresh and real to you. I was thinking this week about how many times that that's happened in my own life. As a seminary student, I took a job as a pastoral assistant at First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. I had already been on the mission field. I had been in full-time ministry. But this is the first time I'd ever been on staff at a local church. And I had preached on the church. I had written papers on the church. I grew up in the church. But I'm here to tell you, that was the first time that I fell in love with the local church. I think primarily through the ministry and the time with older saints that were in the church and the way in which that place felt like a family. For the first time, I thought to myself, I don't, God, I don't know what you have for me, but I'm going to spend my life with the church. Whatever I do, I'm going to be in the church. I even thought this week about one funny moment. I uh, was in a church just filled with a lot of older saints, and there was a precious older widow named Gail Drew who used to give hams to the staff every Christmas. There's nothing better than a good ham. But I was a lowly, single, pastoral intern, and of course, I'm not in the, in the group of people that get hams. And on a Sunday morning at the end of the day, I mean, why do you give a single seminary student a ham? At the end of a Sunday morning, right before Christmas, Gail Drew walked up to me. She had one more ham, and it had my name on it. She gave me a ham. And as strange as it sounds, I remember in that moment thinking, what a wonderful thing it is to be a part of a local church where it's just family. Here I am away from family. God bless a good ham. But God used those moments to say to, to say to me, Josh, the church is where it's at. Like that's where it's happening. That's where God is. That's where it's moving. You gotta be in the church. I think about the summer of 2013 when Andrea was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And through all of those seasons and all of the treatment and all of the difficulties, the one thing that became the clearest to me in those moments is a real experience of the love of God. How many sermons had I preached? How many verses had I memorized about the love of God? But for the very first time, I came to the personal awareness that the love of God is sufficient and enough for every circumstance. And the more difficult it got, the deeper of an understanding I had of God's love. Think about six months after I came here, I was in the car, uh, nothing special. I don't even know where I was going, but I just began to think about how thankful I was to be here. 
just overwhelmed by God's goodness in bringing us to Prince Avenue Baptist Church and the way in which you've loved us and cared for us and how much I love you. And I was thinking about how much I love Prince Avenue Christian School and just the whole culture and environment here. I, I really was overwhelmed with the goodness of God and I just began to cry. And the word that kept coming to my mouth is just, uh, to my mind is just kindness. But for some reason in that moment, I just felt like I was the recipient of a lot of undeserved kindness. And I just said, Lord, you've just been so kind. I don't know how else to say it. God, you're just kind. I don't deserve anything. And when I think about what you've given to our family and how you blessed us, you're just so kind. And I'll never forget that moment in the car alone when I became aware in a personal way of the kindness of God. Now, sometimes these moments are really painful. Sometimes they're really joyful. But all of them are good moments when God takes some truth we've always known with our minds and allows us to experience it with our hearts. And that's why God leads us in that way. He takes us through these moments because he doesn't want us just to know about him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to have our own testimonies, our own stories of how real God is. And you know, this book right here, from beginning to end, is really just a book of those moments. Read the entire Old Testament. Read the Gospels. Read the words of Paul and Peter and James and John. You know what they are? They're people writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, truths that they know that through some experience became real in their hearts in a new way. They simply recount for us what it's like to know and really experience God. Now, one of the greatest of those stories happened in about 700 BC. King Hezekiah, the king over the southern kingdom of Judah, was living as the rest of the known world was under the constant threat of the brutal and barbaric Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire was determined to take over the known world and they didn't just come and take over, they came and raped and pillaged and enslaved. Everyone was terrified of what they would do. Now, Hezekiah had just watched as the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom of Israel, he watched as that happened. And now, outside of his own nation, around the, the people, I mean, the city walls of Jerusalem, listen, were 185,000 Assyrian soldiers waiting to take them. Now, let me put that in perspective. 185,000 soldiers is more than the population of Athens, Clark County. In the entire Marine Corps, there are 186,000 Marines. Imagine the entire Marine Corps surrounding the walls of this small little insignificant nation, not only ready to take them down, but to humiliate them and abuse them and destroy them. And here's King Hezekiah, having no idea what to do. Now, one of the things the Assyrians often did is they not only employed physical warfare, but psychological warfare. So the king of the Assyrians sent in some messengers to speak to the people of God on behalf of the king of Assyria. It's given to us in Isaiah 36. Just listen to these words. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. The Assyrians sent someone who spoke the language of the people of God and said this. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king of Assyria, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. 
For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come, says the king of Assyria, and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and wine and a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Severavim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has ever delivered their land out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Then after taunting the people of God, the king of Assyria sent Hezekiah a letter simply saying the same thing. Whatever you do, uh, just surrender because if you don't surrender, it's going to be worse for you. So here's what happens. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. He took the letter with 185,000 soldiers outside and he put it on the ground and he got on his face before God and his right king Hezekiah said, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire. But they were no gods, but just the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I mean, what else do you do when you're in that kind of situation? He did the only thing he could do for the sake of God's name. God, would you please do what only you could do? Deliver us. It says that after he prayed, they went to sleep. That night, an angel of the Lord came and slaughtered 850,000 soldiers outside of the walls. So the people of God woke up the next morning and all that was left is a massive battlefield of dead soldiers, 185,000 soldiers killed without the people of God doing anything but praying. The angel of the Lord came and destroyed them. Then the king of Assyria went back to his home, went into his temple to pray to his God. His son came in and killed him and took his throne. In a matter of moments, every soldier was dead. The king was dead because God came and displayed that you don't mock the king of kings. There is one king above all kings and in the end he will always win so just when the king of Assyria strutted his stuff and came and said who has ever defeated the king of Assyria the Lord answers well I have and he did it was out of that moment watching God work in that way that the people of God wrote Psalm 46 and 47 let me read both of them for us. Starting in Psalm 46, it says this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's giving this picture of everything being chaos around us, but we won't fear. Because there's a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. He shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and behold the works of the Lord. This is, by the way, an invitation to come and look at the battlefield. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over all the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather at the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen? So out of this circumstance, as they watched God move, the one truth that they had believed and taught and sung before that now became personal and real to them was the simple truth repeated twice in Psalm 47. Our God is the king of all the earth. That's what they learned in this moment. God took this circumstance and established in them one truth that they should never forget. There is one king. He is the king of all of the universe and he's our king. Now we read Psalm 47 as New Testament believers, meaning that we interpret the Old Testament in light of what we know in the New Testament. And one thing we know for certain is this, that King of Kings, that Lord of Lords, that King who is ruling and reigning over all things, who is seated and throned, is in fact Jesus Christ, amen? Which means that the truth of Psalm 47 for us as New Testament believers is this, Jesus Christ is the sovereign king who is ruling over all the earth. That's it. That's the truth. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king, meaning he has control over every square inch of this universe, including you and your life and your circumstances. He is the sovereign king over all of the earth. Now what Psalm 47 does for us is it not only reminds us of that truth, it shows us how to respond to that truth. Because Psalm 47 is a response. Worship is our response to revelation, meaning God reveals himself, and when we respond to that, that's an act of worship. So it is, here are the people of God who've just seen God do something incredible, and they now understand in a real way that there is one king and he is the sovereign king over all the universe and they respond to that truth. What Psalm 47 does for us is this. It reminds us of this truth and shows us exactly how we as New Testament believers today 
When you walk out of this room tomorrow, the rest of the week, the rest of your life, how do you respond to the simple truth? We've got a king. He's sovereign over everything in all of the earth. Psalm 47 gives us three responses. And let me say before this, the reason I'm not preaching Psalm 46 is because I did it in March in the first week of the pandemic. So you can go back and listen. I'm not skipping it. I already preached it. How do we respond to this truth? How do you respond to this truth? Let me give you three very practical, personal ways. Please write them down. The first one is this. We spread this truth through aggressive missions. We spread this truth through aggressive missions. I'm so thankful that represented in this room is, uh, and in the pavilion, many college students and many of the next generation. I see many children here. And I just want every one of us, whether you are five or 95, to understand that this simple truth, that Jesus is king, the way we respond to that is that we spread the truth through aggressive missions. Now, as we read a moment ago from Isaiah 36 and 37, the Assyrians taunted the people of God. They mocked them. They made fun of them publicly. They stood in their own language and said, your God is gonna be just like every other God and you're going to be defeated. You're gonna be humiliated. So it's better just to come and submit to us. And at the end, what happened is it turned out that there was only one king that could save them and that was not the king of Assyria. It was established at the end that there is a king greater than all the kings of the earth and it is Jesus Christ. And I don't know if it's just because I'm extra carnal and I may be, you can be the judge of that. But if I'm the people of God at this moment, I want to do at least a little bit of na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. Just a little like just kind of get all the people gathered and have a big rally and we stand over that battlefield and we just go, na, 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 hey, hey. You just, you just, it's like, it's like, hey, you see what just happened here? Like who's king now? Like I just feel that when I read this, apparently this was not the response of the believers in Psalm 47, strange to me. You know how they responded? They said, listen, God has not only reminded us there's one king, he's shown you there's one king. That's it. You have spent your life trusting in the king of Assyria. He is now dead and all of your soldiers are dead. There is one king that stands undefeated and it is King Jesus. You must submit to him. They respond with aggressive missions. Look at what they say. It says, clap your hands and here's a key. Circle this, all peoples, wherever you are, the peoples of Assyria, the peoples of Egypt, all peoples clap your hands, meaning to celebrate the king, respond to the king, rejoice in the king. All peoples shout to God with loud songs of joy. And here's the reason that all people should clap their hands for Jesus. Here's the reason all people should shout for Jesus and sing for Jesus because of this truth in verse, true, in verse two, for the Lord the most high is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. Now, anytime you see the Old Testament say, fear the Lord, it's the Old Testament equivalent of be saved. That's what it is. The call of the Old Testament to fear the Lord is to acknowledge that God is king and your response to that is to submit to him and make him your king. And so it is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning is this is that you have rebelled against that one king by your sin. And because of that, you stand as an enemy to him because every one of us are born rebellious Assyrians. 
And we shake our fist at God and say, you can't be king over us. I'm going to be my own king. But someday the Lord will establish that he alone is king. And the only people that will be saved on that day are those who in this life have called upon the name of the Lord and said, Lord, we're asking that you would save us. We trust Jesus Christ and his death as the payment for our sins. We make you the king of our lives. We want to be on the winning side. If you have never done that, you must do that today because the only hope that you have in this life or in the next is to get right now on the right side of King Jesus. So it says, because he is that one king, fear him, come to him, receive him. Listen, people of Assyria, make Jesus your king. What an unbelievable response to this moment to invite everyone who is listening to come in contact with King Jesus and to know him to receive him, to rejoice in him. I love where it says there that he is the great king over all the earth. Have you ever noticed that in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, before we're commanded to go, Jesus establishes his authority, his kingship? He says, all authority has been given to me, meaning Jesus is the ruling, reigning king of the earth. Therefore, based upon my authority, go and preach the gospel to all nations. Why? Because the breadth of Jesus's authority determines the breadth of our mission. Jesus is not just king in Bogart. He's king in every corner of the earth. There is no place in all of the earth where Jesus Christ is not king, which means that every person on earth must know and submit to him. Jesus establishes his authority before he sends to out. So he would make sure that we understand that everywhere we go, we go with King Jesus. And everywhere we go, people must respond to him. So it both gives us confidence to go in the authority of King Jesus. And it gives us a reminder that that little remote place in Nepal that has never heard the gospel is still under the authority of King Jesus and they must fear him. And the whole goal of missions is that we might spread the joy of the Lord to all people. What's the desire? We want all people to clap. We want all people to get happy in Jesus. We want all people to get excited. This is why we so often preach and pray Psalm 67, the first sermon I ever preached as your pastor. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all people. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. What is the cry of the mission of God? That every person on the planet would get happy in Jesus. May all the nations sing for joy. We want to spread the joy of the Lord. That's the mission that God has given us. That people would come to know the goodness of King Jesus. Now listen, it is one thing to say that we are his people and we are on his side. And it's another thing for us to demonstrate that by joining with him in his mission. Church, listen, our king has a mission. And he has called us as his people to engage in that mission to the ends of the earth. And every single one of you, listen to me, every single one of you has a responsibility to join with him on his mission. Remember I said that at First Baptist Church of Durham, God caused me to fall in love with the church and I just realized the church is where it's at. Like the church is where God's moving and I wanna get in on that. Let me just tell you, nothing has changed. God has always established that it is through his church 
that we will accomplish the mission of God. And so it is as a church, we join together our money, our time, our resources so that we might aggressively spread the joy of the Lord. And I don't know of any place, I'm not kidding, any place where it's easier to do that than Prince Avenue Baptist Church. We have 11 partners and missions all over the world. We have eight local partners. The ministry that we're doing in places like Nepal and Japan and Lebanon and Manchester and Peru are some of the most strategic mission strategies going. We are taking the gospel to some of the hardest reach places in the world. We are reaching people who have never heard the gospel. And through your involvement and prayers and financial giving, you join in with the movement, not only of Prince, but of the kingdom of God. And one of the reasons right outside these doors, we're taking that little area over there, we've removed the desk and changed the wall because we're making that into a mission center. So you can leave here, walk right over there and say, how can I get involved? I'm ready to go. Because Isaiah is very clear when it talks about the story that the reason Hezekiah wanted God to save them is so his name might be known. The reason God did save them is for the glory of his own name. God saved you so that you might join with him in the mission of spreading his joy to all people. There's one king, he's your king, and he's sending us on a mission. So the way we respond to that truth is to spread this truth through aggressive missions. But the second one is this, write this down. We not only spread this truth through aggressive missions, we celebrate this truth through joyful worship. Now I'm just getting started, all right? This is, this is good stuff right here. We spread it through aggressive missions. Write the second one down. We celebrate this truth through joyful worship. I say this to you all the time that our responsibility is not just to read the text, but we've got to feel the text. You've got to feel the text. God does not speak in monotone. This is the word of God coming from the voice of God. God doesn't speak in monotone. There's sometimes God speaks in an angry voice, sometimes in a very calming and pleasant voice, sometimes in a really happy, excited voice. So what is the, the tone, the feel of Psalm 46 and 47? Well, it's, it's happy. It's rejoicing. I think it's kind of the way you'd feel if God just delivered you from 185,000 brutal barbaric Assyrians. They're happy. Why? Because they just got saved. They were about to be raped and pillaged. Their children become enslaved. Their women enslaved while all the men destroyed, taken to a hostile country, and God saved them. You'd be happy too. They're happy. And so the whole feel is let's clap, let's sing with a loud song. Let's rejoice in the good things God has done for us because we just saw a demonstration of our king showing us that he loves us and he cares for us and he is the one who saves us. And it's amazing how personal this is to them. Look at what he says there, verses three and four. He says, he subdued the people under us. We watched him as he put the nations under our feet. What does that mean? Well, we're stepping over dead soldiers. They're, they're under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. He, 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 meaning he, he determined our future and what we received. We're the pride of Jacob whom he loves. And so the response to that is this. Five times, verses six and seven. So sing praise to God. Sing praise. Sing praise to our king, sing praise, for God is the king of all the earth, so sing praises with a psalm. The appropriate response to your salvation and the fact that you didn't have 185,000 Assyrians surrounding you, but you had the devil surrounding you ready to take you down. 
But God in his grace came and rescued you through his death, burial, and resurrection. And by calling upon the name of the Lord, you got saved. The response to that is to celebrate that salvation with joyful worship, to sing and to shout and to clap and to get happy about what God has done for you. You know, my previous church, I had this lady who just refused uh, to display any excitement about the Lord. My previous church was about 40% African-American and we did this uh, black gospel song. The presence of the Lord is here. The presence of the Lord is here. My kids are so embarrassed right now. I feel it in the atmosphere. The presence of the Lord. And uh, all of our uh, black choir members would sway like this and our white ones would try and it was so embarrassing and they would get going and they, they would try and, and they would do this and there was that lady right in the middle of the choir just standing like this. The presence of the Lord is here. She was singing the notes. She wasn't getting the feel and she just refused to make any expressions. What, she wouldn't clap. She wouldn't raise her hand. She was, she was determined to not get happy about Jesus. So I asked her one time, I said, well, why is it that, that, that this is so hard for you? She goes, well, I'll tell you, Pastor Josh, I read the Old Testament and I see people doing that. There's commands to clap and, and to be happy and to rejoice in the Lord, but I just can't find any of those same commands in the New Testament. Now, let me just tell you this. If coming out of the heart of God is a call for the people of Judah to celebrate and clap and get happy and praise the Lord when King Hezekiah delivered them from the Assyrians, how much more should we celebrate when King Jesus saved us from death and hell? How much more should we celebrate? It's a good time for you to join them and clap. You have been saved from eternal hell where for all of eternity you would perish in darkness and loneliness and literal burning lake of fire. But Jesus Christ delivered you and our response to that is joyful celebration. This is a big deal to me. It's a big deal because I want lost people to walk into this church and see the way you sing and clap and maybe even do this and think to themselves, it must be good to love Jesus. There must be something happy about Jesus. A dead church has never done anything for the kingdom of God. They can preach all the truth they want to, but if there is no joy in Jesus Christ, no one is ever gonna wanna get saved. But it's not just in here. Listen, as you keep the fire for God burning, meaning you're fighting sin, which quenches the Holy Spirit. You're spending time in the word. You're asking God, God, give me the joy of the Lord. You're fighting for that joy. What happens is this, as you walk out of here as a joyful Christian, people see that and they wanna get in on that. Listen, there's a lot of things they could believe in to get depressed. They don't need that from you. I mean, there's a lot of depressing stuff out there. What God needs from us is joyful people who realize that we're on King Jesus' side and we respond with joyful celebration. This is exactly what is happening here. That the best witness on earth is the witness of a happy believer. And so church, let's, let's do it. Let's celebrate the good things that God is doing with joyful worship. It is the right and appropriate response. Every week, almost, I have someone come up to me, multiple people say, Pastor, that was so good this morning, the music, the, the preaching. I almost shouted amen. <laughs> well, do it. Amen. Like, I, I don't need your affirmation, all right? I go home every Sunday. We sit down at lunch. No one says one thing about how great my sermon was. 
I just, I, I'm the one that brings it up every Sunday. Boy, would y'all like to talk about how great my sermon was? I thought I knocked it out of the park this week. I mean, last week was a double, but I thought I, at least a triple, isn't it good? Like, I'm used to this. I don't need your affirmation. I just want to know that you're hearing, you're believing, you're receiving. And the other people that walk in here think, my word, Jesus must be alive and real and good. That's why this matters. And so we do spread the truth with aggressive missions. All people must know this. And we celebrate the truth with joyful worship. And there's one more response. And some of you need this so badly right now. The final response to this truth that Jesus is the sovereign king over all the earth is that we rest in this truth through hopeful expectation. We rest in this truth through hopeful expectation. What do I mean? What God wants to say to some of you today is this, that I know the nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering. I know what Psalm 2 says about all the nations coming against the Lord. And I know what happens here in Psalm 46 and 47 saying there is chaos all around us. It literally feels if the mountains are falling into the sea, but you just need to stop and remember that the king who rules over all things rules over you. There is nothing that happens by accident. There are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. He loves you more than you know. He's more in charge than you could ever imagine. And he's got it. He's got it. I don't know if you feel this, not only in your own life. I know so many of you have things going on. But in the nation around us, things don't seem to be getting calmer. And the nation is raging. People are angrier than they ever have been. I mean, it's absolute chaos what is going on around us. And in the midst of all of that, some of you are watching so much news, you're feeling it. You're just chaos inside. And the Lord wants to say to you, turn off the TV, pick up a Bible, and let the truth of the Lord's sovereignty give rest to your anxious soul. You got to rest in this church. Things are not going to get better. I don't care who's in the White House. We're not going to get better. Things are going to get worse in some way, even if not in our generation. In next generations, things are going to get worse. We know this. But in the midst of every bit of this, there is this stream of gladness of the Lord, which it says in Psalm 46, which is a picture of the presence of God, which flows through our heart in the midst of all the chaos, gives us a sense of calm in the Lord. And that's why this psalm ends with that prophetic picture of the future in verses 8 and 9. I just remind you, God reigns over all the nations, United States and every other nation, and God sits on his holy throne. We've been reading the book of Hebrews in our daily Bible reading, if you're reading through with us. and I've just been captured by this book. Uh, I've read it over and over over the last couple of weeks, and I love Hebrews 1 where it says this. Jesus, after making purification for sins, sat down. What did Jesus do when he got back up to heaven? He sat, He took a seat. Not tired. He's just not anxious. He's not pacing. He's not wringing his hands because he's got this. And he has called us in the midst of this to work hard and to pray hard. And he's interceding for us and he's helping us and he's blessing us and he's encouraging us. He's watching over everything. But, church, Jesus is not anxious. He's the king over all of the universe. And when every other king or every circumstance in your life tries to bring chaos into your heart, there is a rest that is yours because King Jesus is seated. 
It's amazing that, that the picture that God wants us to have about Jesus until he returns and stands up and establishes his kingdom and it destroys all of those who are rebellious is Jesus just seated. Like you need that picture. You need to see Jesus seated on his throne over your life, over your circumstances, over this nation because he will in fact win. So how do we respond to this truth? Well, we get aggressive in evangelism and missions. We allow the Lord to bring a true, genuine celebration to this house, to your house, to everyone you come in contact with, and we take a deep breath. We be still, which means stop your anxiety and rest in the good news of King Jesus. You know, when I think about Sunday mornings here at Prince, I love, I love Sunday morning. I think about this as really a bit of a, a pep rally. This is a pep rally. Like our job is to get you pepped up. So Ryan's pretty peppy. I'm pretty peppy. I'm a little extra peppy this morning. I think Ryan was a little extra peppy this morning. That, that, uh, that, that hymn you did, that's peppy. So we just, we're, we're trying to be peppy up here. And the reason is, is because we want to, we want to get you pepped up. Now, listen, if, 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 if a football team goes out on Friday night and they get beat by 40 points, and they come up to the coach at the end and they say, well, coach, what do you have to say about this loss? Well, that's a tough one, lost by 40 points. But I, I really like to change the subject. We had an incredible pep rally today. Man, everybody's so peppy and we're just fired up and excited. The music was great. I've never seen so much energy. So let's just focus on the positive. We had an incredible pep rally. No one does that. You see, my fear is, is that as much as we love Sunday morning and I love it and as peppy as we get in here and you're not, you're getting there, as peppy as we get, the pep rally doesn't matter unless we go win the game. Like church, I love doing this, but the goal of this is to give you just enough grace and just enough strength and just enough encouragement to go out into a chaotic world and deal with everything around you with this aggressive heart of evangelism and love for people and a real deep abiding joy and a calm rest in your souls because you believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning. That's the goal. I want, I want this to be an incredibly exciting and dynamic pep rally. I want you to start clapping. And when that feel of saying amen says, you just let it rip. I long for that. I want that. But it's all so that we can get out of here and go live it. So church, let's don't be satisfied with the pep rally. Let's walk out these doors today. Be passionate about evangelism and missions. Allow the joy of the Lord to exude from us and walk through this week with a restful confidence that King Jesus is on your side. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.